All right, if you've been with us over the last several months, you know that we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, but today, uh, being Easter, we're hitting pause on that, and we're looking at uh, a passage from the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, find Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 22 through 36. So Acts chapter 2, 22 through 36. And if you have a Red Pew Bible, that's page 910. So beginning in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested to you by God with mighty, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. <clears throat> This Jesus God raised up, all of that, we, are, uh, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and until I make, until I make your enemies your footstool, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, Steve wore the tie, so I'm here to make all of us casual ones feel welcome. So um, <laughs> that I, I'm doing my part as a pastor. So <clears throat> let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, thank you for your divine plan, and Jesus, thank you for conquering death. Pray, Lord, that um, we would be able to hear what you have for us, especially for those of us who have heard this Easter message so many times in our lifetime, that this would be something that would refresh our faith in you, that we would see things a little bit differently, that our relationship with you would deepen and our intimacy with you would, would grow in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I guess it's pretty obvious that we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. It's uh, foundational to our Christian faith. And so we are going to be looking at uh, Peter's message, actually, after uh, Pentecost. And so uh, jumping into this, I'm, I'm not going to go through all of these verses. We'll just highlight the first few verses, but I thought we should read all that, so you can have that as a background. But we're just going to highlight um, the first few verses of this. And so let's just jump right into this, verse 22. Men of Israel, 
hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to pause there because the first words out of Peter's mouth after getting everyone's attention was Jesus of Nazareth. I think sometimes the most challenging part of delivering a message is getting someone's attention. And once we have their attention, what's the message that we're delivering? See, Peter didn't talk about a cause. He didn't bring up morality or politics or anything else. He brought up a person. He brought up Jesus. Now, what is our message as we talk to people? Do we kind of go with a cause? Do we go with our morality? Do we go with our politics? Or are we simply talking about Jesus, our Lord, our Savior? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this was all the part of God's plan to save the world. Jesus was not a martyr. He's our savior. Jesus didn't die for a cause. He didn't die for an ideology or philosophy. He died for you and me as people. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Continuing with this plan of God, God raised Jesus up from the dead, and this is repeated again in verse 32. Now we must realize who delivered this message. We, We all are familiar with Peter, I would think, to some extent, but maybe not to the extent of where we're going to talk about it this morning. If you think back to this time as this was happening, this was only a few weeks after Jesus died, Acts 2, where we're at right now. Just a few weeks prior, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus during an illegal trial held before the high priest Caiaphas. And so Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But Peter at the Mount of Olives proclaimed this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus then said to Peter, James, and John in Matthew 26, verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is in the Mount of Olives. Jesus found them sleeping. Jesus told them to watch and pray, that they would not enter into temptation, but he found them sleeping again. Two times, right? And then happened a third time. And then Judas came with the people with the swords and the clubs to arrest Jesus. And then the, the disciples, they took off. They, they fled. Peter did get away with chopping off Malchus's ear before Jesus healed him. But Peter followed this group of people to the trial. He, he took off and then he found them again. He, he was following them and, and he went to the trial at Caiaphas's place. And then he there denied Jesus before a servant girl probably a teenager around there, an adolescent, about my daughter's age. Can be very intimidating, by the way. (laughs) But he didn't just deny once, he denied twice before these teenage girls. And then Peter denied Jesus before the bystanders with his sailorish mouth. 
and, and then the rooster crowed. Jesus restored Peter after his resurrection, even though Peter denied him, even though Peter did many things that he said he wouldn't do. And then Peter was given the opportunity to reaffirm his love for Jesus. Right? Peter was given the power of the Holy Spirit to hit the streets of Jerusalem with the message of Jesus, and at the core of this message was the resurrection. Now we need to keep that in mind because this is quite a different Peter from just several weeks ago. And you notice that just like Jesus, he's not talking about programs, he's not talking about philosophy or ideology, he's talking about Jesus risen from the dead. And so it's been about a month and a half since Peter said he'd never leave Jesus, and then he took off when, when Jesus was arrested, so it's less than two months since he denied Jesus to a couple of teenage girls. But then he becomes really bold, really bold with his faith in Jesus. He's no longer the same person that denied Jesus, that deserted Jesus. And so this is something that we must answer. How in the world did that happen? He was in the same exact city, Jerusalem, where he was hiding just a few weeks ago. But now he's out in the public streets just declaring what happened with Jesus. And so what happened? You know, Good Friday was just a, a couple of days ago. And so back in Good Friday, back in that time, th these were a bunch of chickens. And they were hiding. And they did not want to be seen. They did not want to be found. And they were just kind of huddled up with one another. And then when Jesus resurrected, they were still kind of chickens. Right? And they hung out together. And it wasn't until that 40 days that Jesus was hanging out with them, that Jesus ascended, and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, that things changed. They wouldn't even believe the women who came from the tomb telling them, you know what, Jesus' body is not there. The tomb is empty. And they still at that time did not believe that. And so that boldness and that courage really didn't hit them until they witnessed for themselves Je Jesus resurrected. They saw his body and they saw him ascended into heaven and that the Holy Spirit filled them. And the only reason they could proclaim the gospel was that they were convinced Jesus was alive. Without that certainty of Jesus' bodily resurrection, there would be no gospel to share. There would be no Christianity, because there is no Christianity without the resurrection. Christianity does not exist without Jesus raising from the dead. We would have never heard of Jesus without the resurrection. Besides the characters surrounding Jesus in the first century, are there any other historical figures that we know about in this period of history? Probably not. If Jesus never rose from the dead, this entire period of history would not be significant. There's nothing significant that happened back then. Now, let's quickly look at Luke chapter 3 because I'd like to point out something that the same author, Luke, wrote in Acts. Luke wrote in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate 
being governor of Judea and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, why do I point these verses out? And it's not just because that these are historically accurate, but I want to point out that all these names that you read, Pilate, Caiaphas, all of these people in these verses, all of Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself wouldn't matter if the resurrection weren't true. You wouldn't know any of these people. We would have never heard of him, Jesus, or these people if the resurrection was false. Now, Peter and his disciples are evidence of the resurrection. They, they weren't so bold to proclaim their faith out of a lie. They were so fearful. They were so scared, and there, there would be no reason for them to come out of hiding and to be so bold if all of this was false. They didn't risk their lives before Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was still with, were, was with them. Why would they risk their lives now when Jesus was just recently murdered? You see, our faith is dependent on a person. Our faith is dependent on an event. It's historical. Now, have you ever noticed that the New Testament authors, they don't provide us with theories about the resurrection. They don't give us explanations of what happened. The, the events are recorded as a matter of fact. And there are no arguments for it. There are no list of, of proofs. There's no apologetic. There's no convincing because they're just reporting what happened. They're just reporting facts. Now, why? Because for them, there's nothing to defend. They were just telling the people how it was. And so we have a faith that is historical and, and it's historically accurate. And there was no debate as to what happened because there was proof of what happened in them. If anyone wanted to claim that what they were saying and writing was false, they could have done it back then. But everything people threw against them was a lie. There was no hiding their transformation, their change. They, they were different. And, and, and that needed to be explained. That needs to be explained. Their explanation was that they encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ and they encountered the Holy Spirit. And what happened in world history, after their transformation, it, that cannot be denied. They changed the world. Everything Jesus said prior to reaching Jerusalem, it started to make sense for them. And so they started to understand all the times they tried to ignore Jesus talking about suffering and death and rising on the third day. And Jesus' followers actually needed some additional teaching after Jesus died. Luke 24 there were these two fellows, one named Cleopas, and they were traveling to Emmaus, and so about seven miles from Jerusalem, that's where Emmaus is. And in Luke 24, verse 27, Luke recorded for us that Jesus did this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so for over the next 40 days, Jesus taught them, he ate with them, he talked with them before ascending to the right hand of the Father. For 40 days, 
I find this part really curious, though. Remember when all the scribes and the Pharisees, they just kind of show up wherever Jesus was to confront Jesus on things and, and whatever? Where are they now? Where, here's what I think happened. I think that if they showed up, they changed. And they saw Jesus and they followed Jesus. And the ones that did not, and when Caiaphas said, hey, go confront these disciples in Jesus, and they were like, no way, man. That guy rose from the dead. I'm not talking to that guy. I'm not doing that. Right? And so I think those were kind of the places where they were at. And so it wasn't until the power of the Holy Spirit filled the disciples that they had this boldness, this courage to proclaim that Jesus was alive from the dead in Jerusalem to the very people who knew that he died. So what we have in Christianity is not theoretical, it's not imaginary, it's not conceptual, it's not emotional. It is anchored within a person, namely Jesus, and anchored within an event, namely the resurrection. That's our entire faith. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, we need to understand that our faith is reasonable, it is rational, it is historical, and there may be some who do not like the explanations of why we need Jesus, but their liking or their disliking doesn't change the reasonability, the rationality, or the historicity of what Christians believe. We know that what we have is recorded in the Bibles, that that has happened with history, with archaeology. And when Peter and John were confronted by the religious leaders about speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, and they were told to stop what they were doing, they answered this in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, these were eyewitnesses. They were there. And then Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, we, we didn't make this stuff up. Jesus wasn't made up. He's a historical figure who our faith is built on, and this was established very early on amongst the early church. Let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to read the first six verses of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Now, I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Let's take a, a look at verse 6 a little bit more closely. Do you realize what that is saying? Do we realize that the resurrected Christ appeared to 500 people at one time? 
And so Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, challenging anyone who read this letter. Go ask the hundreds of people who, who saw the resurrected Christ about what happened. Go ask them. None of what we're writing, none of what we're talking about is made up. Go ask them. They are still alive. There are over 500 of them. And there are literally hundreds of eyewitnesses who who saw the resurrected Christ firsthand in those 40 days who know Jesus rose from the dead. You know, most of them are still alive that witnessed this. Go ask them. The scriptures are accurate historical books, but even if we took them out of out as historical references, if we just take that out, there is still a lot of Jewish and Roman historians who confirm the historicity of Jesus, even if we take out Christian historians. See, they don't, they don't have the same detail recorded as we find from Peter, Luke, Paul, John, James, and others who have recorded for us, but they do record some very important history. They recorded things such as Jesus being worshipped as God by his followers who called him Messiah. They recorded that Jesus was executed in Judea while Pontius Pilate was the governor. And it's not just first century historians, but historians throughout history who have recorded Christians following Jesus and how they were persecuted and executed over and over and over again. There is no Christianity without Jesus. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. Now, some may think that this is just really obvious, but I want to point this out because there are many religions that aren't reliant on a person or an event like Christianity is. There are religions that they can just move on as they are without a leader or a defining event, and it is not so with Christianity because Christianity is not based on ideas, philosophies, concepts. It has those things, but it is built upon the person of Jesus and the resurrection as a defining event. See, Christianity, it crumbles apart without Jesus and without the resurrection. You'll, you'll do a lot of people who dislike and who hate Christianity a humongous favor, a huge favor, if you disprove the existence of Jesus or that the resurrection ever happened. You'd do them a huge favor. In fact, you will become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire if you do that. If you disprove this with all the books and the speaking engagements and the endorsements, you will become an instant celebrity who will live on throughout human history. If you disprove this, people will study who you are in public schools and universities around the world if you disprove this. But the best people have been able to do is say it's not true without anything to substantiate the claim. That's the best. And whatever worldview you hold to, there are some fundamental questions that need to be answered. There's, I, I like to break them down with past, present, and future. You kind of have to break down these questions. Where do we come from? Who are we? And where are we going? kind of have to answer these questions. Christians have rational explanations for these questions. Some may not like 
the explanations, but they're reasonable. And if your worldview can't answer those questions well, then that particular worldview is weak. Where do we come from? God made us for a relationship with himself. And we belong to him by creation. We have a purpose in life, and what God created was good. Who are we? We are a rebellious people who have rejected God. We have chosen to replace God with substitutes, with false idols that we believe will satisfy us. And and some of them do temporarily, but our rebellion, our sin, has led to brokenness in people and a broken world that is an obstacle to us seeing God and experiencing God. And we all have this desire to know God and to have a relationship with God. And you might be saying, no, we don't. Not all of us do. We do. Because we all have a God or we have gods. And if it's not Jesus, it's some other substitute. It could be materialism. It could be comfort. It could be success. Or for many other people in the Bay Area, it's simply who they see in the mirror every morning. We all have a God. We all serve a God. And Jesus deals with who we are. He seeks to help us change our trajectory of brokenness. The divine plan was for Jesus to become sin for us, to take our place, to take our rebelliousness. And in Jesus, we become righteous. We become the righteousness of God in our substitution of false idols for God. God has substituted Jesus for that rebellion. Our merciful and gracious God has a plan to deal with who we are. To believe in Jesus substituting himself for our sins to make us righteous. And he did that on the cross. Which leads us to where are we going? We are going to a promised land but we're not there yet. We haven't arrived there yet. And this is not it, thank God. Do we have... An exilic mentality, or do we have an exodus mentality? You know, as followers of Jesus, we know that this is not home. We are people in exile. We are in exile. We are sojourners. We are aliens. Our promised land is not here. And one of the problems with sin is that sin makes great things small. It makes us believe that we are in the promised land. That this world is everything that we, we can possibly hope to have. That Jesus comes and he reverses all of this. And he, he delivers us from this smallness. But the thing is, is we are drawn to smallness. That's, that's why we have fortress mentalities. And we have insulation and being protective and all these types of things. That's why we are the way we are. That's why we try to get all that we can now. And people spend so much time planning vacations and careers and retirements more than they plan for planning eternity. Jesus reorders right relationships so that we move towards pain. That we move towards suffering and vulnerability, and we are not moving towards safety. We're not moving towards a fortress mentality. We're not moving towards self-interest or self-preservation. See, moving toward vulnerability, pain, suffering, that's Jesus. 
That's God. That's our life of exile. That's how we move from small to great. So where are we going? We are going toward greatness as we move toward pain, as we move towards others' suffering, as we move towards our vulnerability with one another. Have you ever wondered why you're here or what the meaning of life is or why we even exist? For us, we, we look at the cross. We look at the cross. That We look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's, it's all because God loves you and wants to commune with you. He desires to enter into your pain, to enter into your suffering. And sin has caused us to be in bondage to that fortress mentality, to that self-preservation, to that safety. But Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, has set us free from that bondage. We can test the meaning of existence through Jesus. He has stood the test of time. So many miracles have happened in so many people's life through, lives through Christ. So many changed lives. So many chains have been broken from people that now experience freedom. Just, just in our church alone, to, to see so many who have been freed from bitterness and resentment and hate, jealousy, addiction, the things that enslave people. John chapter 8, verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. And Jesus has done for us what we could have never done for ourselves. He has set us free from the bondage of sin. He has opened up the channels of communion with God who loves us, who desires to provide us with a hope of a future, a future filled with fulfillment and freedom, peace, reality, truth, purpose, joy, hope. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and I'm going to close with this verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus defeated death, and he is alive today and for everlasting. He is risen, and he is our Savior who is ready to save today as he was ready 2,000 years ago to reconcile us to himself. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many arguments and apologetics and things that can be thrown out for reasons and rationality and historicity and facts and all these types of things. But Lord, the convincing isn't always of the mind. We know, Lord, that the spirit, the soul, the heart, those things we need you to do. So God, I pray for any walls that have been built over the years by people to continue their rebellion against you to have those broken down, for those calluses to be removed. And Lord, I, I do know that the church and those who call themselves followers of you have some responsibility 
and the pain and the suffering and the reasons why people aren't following you any longer. And I pray, God, that your grace would cover all those things, that they would see you for who you are and what you did. In Jesus' name, amen.